Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. Even as I recognize the situation, I also want to say it is a privilege to be here with you, to come alongside you, to encourage you, and to bring you the hope of the gospel and its truth. Um, and I want you to know that your sister church, Grace Church, just north of you, uh, that you have brothers and sisters in Christ who hold you in the highest regard and the deepest affection, and they are praying for you even as we speak. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and the text will be on the screen behind me. The Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus ends this reading of God's inerrant and sufficient word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, whatever is going on in our lives this day, whatever confusion or frustration, hurt or concern, just the busyness of this world, we pray that we would be able to pause that, that you would lift up our heads, that we might cast our eyes upon Christ, to behold him in his glory, to be transformed into his image, to know the truth of the hope of the gospel and to recover our awe, to restore our first love, that we may proclaim him to a watching world, but Lord, we can't give what we don't have. And so we pray, fill us up this morning. Speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. There's a poem I heard several years ago. No one knows exactly for sure who wrote it. It's been attributed to multiple sources. The most common source was an African pastor who was martyred for his Christian faith. And I'd like to read you just an excerpt from that poem. He writes, quote, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. My decision has been made. I am a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, or first, or tops, or recognized, or praised, or rewarded. I live by faith. Lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. 
My road may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, lured, or turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of adversity. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognizing me. My colors will be clear. This was a man who was unashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, a church that he had never seen. And yet Paul is eager to come to them and preach the good news in the city of Rome. He plans to stop there on his way to Spain, and he greets the church with love and kindness. He tells them that he thanks God for them, and he prays for them. Now, at this point in time, Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the superpower of its day. It was a center of the known world. It was a nexus of culture, philosophy, and trade. It was said that all roads eventually led to Rome. And in the midst of this powerful and magnificent city of wealth, Jesus had his church. Now, we don't know for sure who started the church in Rome. The scripture doesn't tell us, but most scholars believe that the church of Rome was actually begun by believers who had been saved on the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. That they had participated in that church in Jerusalem until persecution struck. And when persecution fell upon the church, we know that the Christians fled. They were scattered. And yet, these Christians made their way to Rome and they brought the gospel with them. And it's with this gospel that they founded the church in Rome. And Paul begins his letter to this church with the words of our passage. And it's important for us to take time to consider what is said here in verse 16 and 17, because most people, as they read the first chapter of the book of Romans, think this is merely the introduction. It's the greetings that Paul gives to the church in Rome, and yet there's so much more here. We want to move on and say yes and amen, but you realize that these verses go on to ground the rest of the letter. Verse 16, 17, and 18 actually are, are the foundation that the rest of the letter goes on to unpack. And Paul begins with the words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. So what is the gospel? And even as I say that, I know they say that tongue-in-cheek. I know the caliber of men you have in the ministry here at Oak Hill. I know that they preach to you faithfully week in and week out the word of truth. I recognize that you have heard the story of the gospel a million and one times. And yet, it is so important for us to be clear, to remind ourselves of the truth of this gospel, especially in difficult moments and in trying times. Because the world around us is not clear. They do not know the word. They have not heard the gospel. They have not encountered the living Christ. In fact, 
If Humboldt is anything like Algona, I can say that if I were to walk into your community and ask a hundred different people what the gospel was, I'd probably wind up with a hundred different answers. So what is the gospel? Well, Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 and 4, where he writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So according to the Apostle Paul, that which is of first importance for the Christian life, for the Christian congregation, for our salvation, is the Lord Jesus, is his person and work. The second person of the Trinity came down into this world, stepping down from his throne, taking on human form. He was born of the Virgin Mary, lived the perfect life, obeying God's law, fulfilling all righteousness, and then dying the death that you and I deserved on the cross as our substitute. This same Jesus, God the Father, raised from the grave three days later. And when he rose, he conquered Satan, sin, and death, promising eternal life and reconciliation with God for all who would repent and believe in him. Friends, that's the message that founded the church in Rome. It's the message that the Apostle Paul is proclaiming. That message is at the foundation of my church. It's at the foundation of Oak Hill as well. It's what Paul is speaking about in our passage today. I am not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, the Apostle Paul is bold. He is confident. He is certain. Why? Because he had been personally transformed by this gospel. And that brings us to our first point. The gospel transforms the messenger. The gospel transforms the messenger. Paul is writing, and the first thing he says is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because he had experienced the power of the gospel firsthand. We know from the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. That he was not a Christian. None of us start off as Christians. None of us are born as Christians. That's why Jesus said we must be born again. Rather, the Apostle Paul began as a Pharisee, as a devout Jew who saw Christianity and saw the church as a threat to his way of life, to his faith, and to his people. And as such, he treated it with the contempt he thought it deserved. He persecuted the church. He participated in the murder of Stephen. He threw Christians into jail. He sought for letters of approval from the Pharisees and from the Sanhedrin in order to export that persecution to other places as well. He was the first century equivalent of the Taliban. And yet, on the road to Damascus, Almighty God reached down and transformed Paul forever. He was totally changed. He was utterly transformed. He was a new creation. He had been born again. He went from being a radical enemy of the gospel to a proclaimer and a lover of that very same gospel. Everything about Paul changed. And friends, the truth is, if you are a Christian here today, the same is true of you as well. That you also have been transformed by this gospel. The problem is, we so often forget. My old pastor and mentor used to say that we have a form of spiritual amnesia. That we think to ourselves, well, you know, I wasn't as bad as the Apostle Paul. I never killed anybody. 
I, I didn't really hurt anybody. What was the harm? I mean, I'm glad I'm a Christian now, but, but I was, you know, it's pretty much the same thing after all. And yet, Scripture says that without Christ, you were spiritually dead. That you were without hope before you had Jesus. And yet we forget. We lose our awe of God. We forget the significance of the transformation that took place in our lives. And as such, we lose focus on where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing. We develop a domesticated form of the gospel. We settle for some truncated form of the gospel that has lost its potency. The problem is we get so caught up with the tyranny of the urgent and the material pleasures of this world that we forget about what the whole world was created for in the first place, the reason for which you were made. You were made for God. You were made to enjoy God, to love God, to be loved by Him, and to glorify Him. We forget the true message of the gospel. We fall into this default mentality about about the gospel in which we say, well, it's good, but there's other stuff in life as well. Like, I like Jesus, especially on Sundays. It's good for me, and I know it's good for my kids to go to Sunday school class, but, you know, there's other stuff in life too. And I I like my life. And and so, Jesus, you can be Lord on Sunday mornings and maybe Sunday nights, but, you know, the rest of that, that, that's mine. Don't touch that. I've organized it completely. I'm comfortable with the way I am. Thank you very much. We begin to treat the gospel like a commodity. And this is the danger of spiritual amnesia, of losing our first love. D.A. Carson summarizes his attitude very well. He writes, quote, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies or cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself don't want to love those different from me, from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Friends, that is the danger of forgetting the true power of the gospel. We forget that the gospel that justified us is also the same gospel, gospel that sanctifies us and has guaranteed to one day glorify us as well. And so instead of pressing into that gospel, we stall, we coast, we settle. That's why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. Remember, he's writing this to Christians. Why do Christians need to hear the gospel? I mean, after all, haven't they already heard the gospel? Isn't that what made them Christians in the first place? They're going to church. But friends, contrary to popular opinion, The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the ABCs of the Christian life that we learn and then we graduate from. No, no. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is what justified us. It is what shapes our lives. It is what motivates us. It is what brings us home to glory. 
We need this as individuals, as families, and we need it as a Christian congregation as well. It is this gospel that unites the people of God, that brings us together from every corner, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's the reason we gather for worship on the Lord's Day. That's why you're here. We need this to remind us of the mission that we are called to as Christians. We need it as families to transform the way we parent, to be the foundation and bedrock for our marriages. And we need it as individuals to drive our lives. The gospel is as necessary for the life of a Christian as much as it is for the non-Christian. And as Christians, we are to remind ourselves of the power of the gospel and the value of Christ, to see Jesus as preeminent and brilliant and glorious and by which everything else pales in comparison. It's not something we do. It's not somewhere we go. It's who we are. It's our identity in Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 3. He articulates this attitude that I'm trying to convey. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God It depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Friends, this is true Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. This is what Christianity is supposed to look like. We don't coast. We don't settle for $3 worth of gospel. We keep pressing on. We keep moving further up and further in. We follow Christ. And rather, we are not ashamed. Rather, we are confident. We are bold. We are certain in the one in whom we have believed. And friends, that guarantees not only our past has been saved, but that guarantees our presence. And it gives us certainty as we look forward to the future. And friends, I want to just lay this out and apply this to our lives in this moment. I know this is a time of confusion and frustration. But I want you to realize that God has not forgotten about you. That your God knows all things. That he controls all things. And he will work even the hard things for your good and for his glory. Scripture says that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So how are we bold? How are we confident? The same reason the Apostle Paul was, because we have experienced the power of the gospel firsthand. As from here, we can look at the second point, that the gospel saves those who believe. The gospel saves those who believe. We see this in verse 16, where we are told that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We are told the same thing in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, where it says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Now we get that part, right? We preach grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you notice that's not where the Apostle Paul ends. He moves into verse 17. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What are we to make of that last clause in this sentence? How are we to understand that? Why does the Apostle Paul put that there? Well, because up until now, the Jews had been the people of God. You could not be counted in the people of God unless you were born a Jew and you, or you became a Jew. And that second possibility was rather a painful process. Up to this point, the world had been divided into two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks, or the Gentiles. That word, Greeks, that's translated in the ESV, the Hellenoi, is literally just a junk drawer term that the, ESV, or that the New Testament uses to categorize anybody and everybody who's not Jewish. And yet, with the coming of the gospel, with the coming of the Lord Jesus, the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. The hostility that was once there no longer applies because we are made one in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is writing to a church of Christians, but a church of Christians from different ethnic backgrounds. You had Jews and Gentiles. You had Greeks, Scythians, slave, free, male, female, rich, and poor, slaves and freemen. And yet he's stressing that the gospel is for all who would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. That means that the gospel transcends race, gender, age, creed, language, or socioeconomic status. It is for all people. It reconciles the irreconcilable. The gospel saves us as we trust in Christ, and it draws us together. We have to answer a question. What exactly does the gospel save us from? And I'm going to cheat and skip forward to verse 18. Look with me at verse 18 really quickly. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Friends, that's the answer. Christians are saved from the wrath of God towards sinners. And that's important because that's the bad news which makes the good news good in the first place. It's what makes the gospel comprehensible. And we have to understand that. That ultimately, you are not saved from a life of mediocrity, from your addictions and bad habits. You are not merely saved from difficult relationships or ter a terrible divorce. You are saved from the just and righteous, holy wrath of God towards your transgressions, toward your sins. Sins that come with a cost. Sins that come with judgment. And the Bible tells us that each and every one of us will have to stand on that terrible day of judgment before the Lord 
to account for every thought, word, and deed we've ever committed. And without Jesus, we are lost. And let's just be honest, that's really hard for people to comprehend. That's really hard for the world around us to appreciate. As a pastor, um, I, I, sometimes, I, I have a difficult time finding gospel opportunities. I have to be very intentional looking for them because a lot of times I'm encased in this church bubble. And, and um, so I'm, I'm very intentional in seeking out places where I can speak to non-Christians and share with them the hope of Christianity. And I remember one time I was invited to go back to Detroit. That's where I was initially from. Um, and I was asked to stand up in my buddy's wedding. And I was, felt honored and I obviously agreed. But their church has a, a bit of an interesting um, rule. And that is, if you are a groomsman, you have to go to the wedding shower. Now, Wedding showers are predominated by women, and that's okay, right? It's time for fun and fellowship and food. They have a good time, but, but as a guy, that's not really my bag. Um, and, and the other groomsmen felt the same way. And so over time, we developed this tradition. That is, we found this coat room in the back of the church that had just enough room for all the guys to hang out. So we'd swipe some chairs, take them back to the coat room, and we'd shut the door. And the door happened to have a lock on it, so we'd lock it too. We just take that entire time and hang out. And when people ask, well, we, we were just looking for our coats, you know. Uh, not really, that's a lie. Um, but uh, eventually, at some point, the ladies are going to figure out where we're at, and, and they can't really force us out, because again, the door's locked. But the bride's going to show up, bang on the door, and say, give me my future husband. Now, at that, at that point, what you do is you take the future husband, you chuck him out the door, and then you shut it and lock it again. All right? and, and we did do that, and I feel zero sympathy for my buddy. Um, but, but I discovered that some of the groomsmen I had never met before. And um, one of the gentlemen was, was uh, a student at the University of Michigan. And I was like, hey, that's my football team. I love, uh, I love Michigan. Um, and, and then he told me he was a major in philosophy. And I, I'm fascinated by philosophy. And so we started talking about some of the finer points of his, uh, of his study in philosophy. And I tried to move the conversation towards Christianity. And I discovered that while he was not a Christian, he'd grown up with some kind of church background. And yet, he had a hard time appreciating and understanding the gospel. There's something, there was a hang-up there. When I really put my finger on it, here's the question he asked. How is it that an all-powerful God can't find another way to forgive sins? How is it that if God is love, that he can't find another way other than killing his own son to forgive us? And friends, while that's a blunt question, that's also an honest one. And it's a question that a lot of our neighbors and family and friends have for us as well. But, but here's the deal. And this is what I said to him. I said, Scripture teaches that God is love, yes. But it also teaches that God is holy. And the reason people don't appreciate salvation in Christ is because we don't understand the gravity of our own sin. We don't understand the gravity of our sin because we don't understand what it means for God, in fact, to be holy. Because if we did realize that our sin is not, we would realize our sin is not a mistake. It's not merely an oops. It's rebellion. It's cosmic treason against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it comes with a cost. It comes with a punishment. It's called hell. And people will go there. Because Sin against an eternal God requires an eternal consequence, and an eternal consequence requires eternal punishment. 
And friends, if we truly believe that message, it should motivate us to lovingly engage with the world around us. That even in the hard times, even in the dark times, we cannot lose the mission that Christ has given to us to proclaim his goodness, his hope, his gospel to the world around us, to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. If this is why we gather, then the mission cannot stop. And it's not because we're any better. Remember, we were in the same place apart from Christ. You remember what Ephesians said, that we were without God and without hope in the world. And I realize I'm speaking to a, a congregation that is predominantly non-Jewish. We did not grow up with these things. Ethnically, it does not belong to us. We did not earn it. We do not merit it. We cannot work for it. We can only receive it by faith. We are beggars showing the other beggars where the bread is. And while we were on this hell-bound race, it was in that moment that Christ stepped down and interposed himself between us and the wrath of God, taking it upon himself on the cross as our substitute. That's the hope that we have. It's what we believe in, and it's what we have faith in. It's what we are called to trust. And friends, it bothers me that as I tell you that story about this gentleman at the wedding, um, that he had grown up in a church and he'd never heard this message. We can never get past this. We can talk about faith. We can talk about belief. But if we don't tie it to these truths, it means nothing. Because people don't get offended by faith. They don't have a hard time with the idea of belief. In fact, we hear people say this, even non-Christians all the time. Hey, look, you have to have faith in something, right? I don't care what you believe in, just believe in something. The problem is that's not true. And you know it, and I know it. The thing you believe in has to be true. It has to be real. It has to be objective. It has to be there to catch you when you fall. Let me give you an example of how we know this isn't true, that you can't just believe in something and make it true by your personal belief. Um, several years ago, my church um, got me a gift for Pastor Appreciation Month. They, they, they knew I was, as I mentioned earlier, um, I come from Michigan. I grew up in the Metro Detroit area. I'm a big fan of the Michigan Wolverines, and they bought my wife and I tickets to go watch the Michigan Wolverines play at Kinnick Stadium. Now, up until this point in the season, Michigan had been undefeated. We had been marching up and down the field on every team, just trouncing whoever they put in front of us. And I was confident that Michigan was going to win that game. Some of you guys are sports fans. You know exactly where I'm going with this. Um, I talked a lot of smack in my church. And when I went down to Kinnick on Saturday, I was confident. No, no, no. I believed we were going to win that game. I had faith that we were going to win that game. Well, we didn't win the game. In fact, they played abysmally. In fact, they lost at the last second on a field goal. It was terrible. The Hawkeyes rushed the field. They had a great time, right? Um, and I had to go home, and the next day was Sunday, which means I had to eat a lot of humble pie when I got to church that day. Um, the reason I tell that story is because just because you believe something doesn't make it so. The reason the gospel is so glorious is because it's real. The reason why Jesus is so beautiful is because he's the truth. 
He said, in fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we lose that, there's nothing there to catch us when we fall. What you believe has to hold you, be able to hold you when life gets hard. And the gospel that we believe is the gospel of Jesus, his person and work, and his righteousness. And it's through that righteousness that we are saved. And that brings us to our third and final point. The gospel is bound up in the righteousness of God. The gospel is bound up in the righteousness of God. We see this in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, people love to hear stories of self-made men or women. Uh, we love to, to read stories like that. I, I personally like to read biographies, Christian and otherwise. I like to read about presidents and watch documentaries. I was a history major in college. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy those things, and I know a lot of other people do as well. It's, it's what makes for a good movie. It's what makes for a good story. When somebody has nothing more than the clothes on their back, and yet somehow through the midst of adversity, they succeed and overcome. They reach inside themselves and find that inner strength. When fate gets in their way, they break fate over their knee until they get what they want. Those are phenomenal stories. We love to hear that kind of thing. But the truth of the gospel is this, that when it comes to your spiritual condition, you can't save you. Only Jesus can do that. That you can't reach inside yourself for some kind of strength and find it because there is no strength to be found. It has to come from outside you. It has to come from another. You don't have, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you don't have bootstraps to begin with. The Bible says that we cannot earn or merit our salvation. It says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. And yet we know that we are saved by righteousness because verse 17 says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So how are we to be called righteous? How are we to be saved if we don't have righteousness? And the answer is from a foreign righteousness, from a righteousness that comes from outside of us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You realize the passage here is not saying that you are saved by faith. You are saved through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one that saves. Faith is the means to which we hold fast to Jesus, in which we trust and rely alone on him for salvation and rest upon his promises. And it is only through that faith that we receive his righteousness. And that's really important. That it takes the work of the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, to save us for eternity. You know, sometimes people like to say that uh, unlike Christ Christianity is unlike any other religion, in the sense that every other religion is works-based, while Christianity is faith-based. But that's not technically correct. While Christianity is grace-based, it is also works-based. The only difference is, it's not your works. You can't earn it. It's Christ who works for you. It was Jesus that fulfilled the law. Where you failed, where you rebelled, Jesus obeyed. Jesus accomplished all righteousness. 
It's why the story of Jesus doesn't start with the birth and then move exactly to the cross. There were 33 years in which Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And when we take hold of Christ in faith, what we are saying is his righteousness is now my righteousness. What he did is given to me. His reputation covers my own. Where my sin and my rags and my brokenness are all I have to present to God, Christ clothes me and says he is mine. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You realize if we were to, those two words in him are remarkably important. If we are to say that, that God saved us and we are now the righteousness of God, we're in big trouble because I cannot attain that righteousness. I'm a pastor. I've been a Christian for over 13 years. I still am nowhere near the goal. I fall short on a moment-to-moment basis. But in him, in Jesus' righteousness, so that I receive his righteousness and he receives my sin. He pays for that sin and he gives to me his goodness. It's not enough for your sins to be paid for on the cross. You can't just be brought out of the negative. You have to move into the positive and that only accomplishes, that's only accomplished through the finished work of Christ. This is the only way anyone can be saved. It is a change of status that's conferred upon us by God through the power of his spirit and the work of his son. Martin Luther illustrates this change of status with a story. He tells the story of a king who marries a prostitute to the relationship between Jesus and sinners that he has saved. When they marry, the prostitute becomes by status a queen. It is not that she made her behavior queenly and so won the right to the king's hand. She was and is a wicked person through and through. However, When the king made his marriage vow, her status changed. Thus, she is simultaneously a prostitute at heart and a queen by status. In just the same way, Luther saw that the sinner, on accepting Christ's promise in the gospel, is simultaneously a sinner at heart and righteous by status. What has happened is the joyful exchange in which all that she has, her sin, she gives to him. And all that he has, his righteousness, blessedness, life, and glory, he gives to her. Thus, she can confidently display her sins in the face of death and hell and say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. Friends, this is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the gospel that unites us. This is the gospel that sets us on mission, that motivates our lives, that stands as the foundation of this church. And so even as we go from this place, and and there's a lot coming up for you, and I recognize that, I want you to press into the gospel, to trust what Christ has for you, that he not only has taken care of your past, but he also holds your future. He loves you, and Jesus has promised to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as we go out from this place, that we would rest in the finished work of Christ, that we would stand in awe of your goodness and love toward us.
and sending of your son. We pray, help us to represent him well with each other in this community, in Iowa, and to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.